Steve Boyce is the Director of Religious Education at the Sheboygan North Catholic Parishes. She received her Bachelor's in Theology and English from Briarcliff University and her Master's in Theology from the University of Notre Dame. She and her husband David were married last summer at Holy Name. They are loving the newlywed life together, playing board games, going outdoors, spending time with family and friends. Kate has a beautiful topic this evening titled, Love Poured Out, the Eucharist and the Beatitudes. Welcome, Kate. Hello, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Um, thank you so much for having me. I love these soup supper talks every year. I just love the combination of fellowship and of mass, and it's, it's just lovely. It's lovely to see so many of you here. Um, we already started in prayer, but if you don't mind, I'm just going to pray again. Feel free to join me. Um, yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord and giver of life. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds. Let our hearts be receptive to every prompting of yours. Jesus, who we received in the Eucharist at Mass. Jesus, who we encounter in every tabernacle in the world. Convict and convince our hearts of your presence evermore. Teach us to love, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So... Um, tonight, I'd like to talk about kind of two topics. Really, I picked um, the Beatitudes because for the whole year of, just under a year, of um, David and I's engagement, we pray the Beatitudes every single day together. And the priest who uh, did our wedding, Father Kaczewski, he prayed them as well on his own. Um, it's a cool thing that he, I guess, decided to do at some point. Every couple that he is working with or that he's going to say the wedding of, he asks them to pick a prayer um, that they'll say and that he'll say. And I had never given a whole lot of thought to the Beatitudes, really, kind of embarrassingly so. But the day that he asked me to pick a prayer was the Feast of All Saints a um, year and a half ago. And the gospel reading that day is the Beatitudes. So they had been on my mind all day after um, that morning mass. And I'm really on my mind as a, I know these Beatitudes are important. I know that they're Jesus' most famous sermon, um, but I don't know much about them. So I kind of wanted to focus on them for that. And it's become a really, really beautiful thing, I think, in our marriage that for a year um, we were praying about mercy and about compassion and about being poor in spirit and um, to both grow in these ourselves but also to extend them to one another in the midst of the sacrament that we get to live now. So well, I'm going to start with the Beatitudes but then I want to kind of turn our focus to the Eucharist and how these might connect. The 
Beatitudes, of course, come from Matthew's Gospel. They're rather early in Matthew's Gospel. They're in chapter 5, um, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is very interesting because, it, partially because of the location. It's preached um, on some type of height. I've not been to the Holy Land. I'm sure there's some of you who have been. I hope to go one day. Um, but it's preached on a, not quite a mountain, but a higher place. And it's meant to mirror where Moses would have spoken to the people, where he would have spoken um, about the Ten Commandments, um, where he would have given the law from God. And then in Luke's uh, version of the Beatitudes, the Matthews seem to be more famous. They're a little more straightforward. You can categorize eight of them and they don't have the parts about woe to those afterwards, so I think that actually might be why they're a little more popular, is because they're a little happier. <laughs> but we're going to focus on Matthews tonight, just simply for the ease of it. Um, but Luke's Beatitudes are preached um, from a plain, which would have been more similar to the plains of Moab that Moses would have spoken from just as they were about to enter into the Promised Land. So the way that Jesus speaks these, he's very much speaking them to people who remember Moses, who know the law of Moses, who know about the great exodus that, um, that God led them through. And he's very much setting up his path as another exodus, both an exodus that he will walk and an exodus he wants to lead us through. If you're doing Emmaus 90, which if you're not, that's okay, but Emmaus 90 is through the Archdiocese this year. It's a 90 day, uh, 90 days of prayer, of um, some formation talks. And actually, Father Kazuski, the one who married us, gave one of those formation talks. And he spoke about how Jesus' exodus, um, the word exodus, it means exit, right? Like those signs above the door there. If you go um, to, I think, just the Holy Land area again never been but the signs don't say exit there above the door they say exodus um, and this is an exit from something and into freedom always for the sake of worship so when God first tells the Israelite people that they're going to be freed from slavery and when he first sends Moses to tell Pharaoh let my people go it is not just let my people go because slavery is wrong though it is. It's not just let my people go because they're oppressed and they're crying out to me. It is let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. So it is freedom for the sake of worship. And then the Beatitudes are also set up as this interior freedom for the sake of worship. We'll see how the Eucharist in particular plays into that a little bit more. So, these Beatitudes preached in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with this famous phrase, each of them say, blessed are the, or blessed are they. This is out of the Jewish tradition of scripture, the very first psalm, which likely most people at this point would have had memorized. The very first psalm starts with, blessed is the man who walks, in the, who walks not in the way of the wicked, but walks in the way of the Lord, right? Blessed is the man. So Jesus knows who he's speaking to, and he knows what their hearts have seen holiness as, and he's, he's reminding them of all that have come before him. This also 
Um, I don't want to pit the Ten Commandments against the Beatitudes. I think that's a, I don't know, kind of a, I don't know what to call that kind of reading. But we're not going to do that tonight because Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say that he's come to abolish any part of the law. He's come to fulfill the law. So he's not telling you, oh, the Beatitudes are, are the new law and the Ten Commandments don't matter. Um, he's, he's building upon that, and he's very much speaking into that tradition. So it also um, harkens back to parts of Jeremiah. This blessedness of those who follow God um, is deeply scriptural. If you've read... Um, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI's uh, Jesus of Nazareth works. You, you can probably just go home, actually, because I read that, and that's how I based a lot of this talk, so yeah, I'm very glad, but you're, you just go get some rest. Um, yes. So, Ratzinger here, um, talks about the Beatitudes as a rather thinly veiled self-portrait of Jesus himself. That Jesus is not just giving instructions, he's also showing us who he is and what he's come for. And then, of course, he perfectly lives this out on the cross. That on the cross, he is totally poor in spirit, he is totally meek, he is mourning, he is pouring himself out with mercy. Um, so the most perfect picture we get of these Beatitudes is Jesus on the cross. Um, and these are not just an idea. Beatitudes are not, um, you know, kind of spiritual maxims, though they are. They're more than that. They are really letting us encounter a person, a person who lives them out perfectly and who calls us to be like himself. So... The Beatitudes, too, are really the lived experience of the saints and of the apostles. Um, St. Paul, in particular, would reflect on this, saying he wouldn't talk about the Beatitudes. I also don't know that they were actually called the Beatitudes in the first century. I kind of doubt it. Um, those headings that we see in scripture, they're so helpful, especially when I'm trying to get kids on the same page in the Bible. Um, those headings are not actually part of scripture. They were added in later to make life easier on us. So I'm not sure St. Paul would have called them the Beatitudes, but he talks about how we are oppressed but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. He talks about these kind of paradoxes of the reality of the persecuted first century church and yet this abiding joy they have in God a joy that cannot be shaken, and a joy that though it would seem by all earthly standards and by all human eyes um, to be unreasonable, is not. Because the lived experience of the apostles and of the saints is that of the life of God who is life itself and yet died, who is love and yet was hated and who, in dying, destroyed death. So these paradoxes that we see in every one of the Beatitudes, um, it is also pointing us towards Christ himself as well.
I'm going to go through each of these. This is going to be probably a good portion of our evening. And I want to pair with them what uh, Peter Kreeft pairs with them in his book, um, Back to Virtue. The later half of this book is simply the Beatitudes set against one of the seven deadly vices, uh, or the seven deadly sins. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, this recurring theme in Jesus' preaching, especially in Matthew, that he has so many metaphors for. But we kind of, I don't know, it's kind of this mysterious thing. I don't have a great working definition of the kingdom of heaven, but certainly the kingdom of heaven is Jesus coming. It is certainly us being open to God coming into our hearts and lives. And it is also a time that is coming that we have not seen yet, when we will be in heaven and when this world will have passed away. So it's kind of all of these things that Jesus talks about. Um, he talks about that mustard seed that is growing in us. He talks about the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and then dies. And he says, this is the kingdom of heaven too. And very much that is his life. He also talks about the kingdom of heaven like the generous landowner, right? So this kingdom of heaven that is promised to us is both a reality we can see now and one that we are going towards. For the Jewish people, this idea of a kingdom was something they thought perhaps the Messiah is bringing, that he will inaugurate the kingdom here on earth, that he will throw down the Romans, that all will be well right here, right now, when the Messiah comes. And... Messiah comes, and we have seen his glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth, and yet all is not right, and all does not go well still in this world. And the people at the time of Jesus, hearing these Beatitudes for the very first time, knew that, and we still know that 2,024 years later, that no matter how deeply converted to the Lord we are, no matter how deeply converted to the Lord those around us are, this world is never going to be perfect. And though we see glimpses of that, though we see glimpses of the Lord's kindness when others are kind to us, though we see glimpses of the Lord's mercy and his generosity when we experience that in others, they are just foretastes and they are just shadows of this kingdom that is promised. And so, this poverty in spirit, or for Luke's Beatitudes, um, poverty in general, is nothing that God is afraid of. It's nothing that is um, the cause of our, our suffering necessarily though poverty certainly can cause suffering, it is not um, something to be ran away from all the time. Because there is this idea, and there probably still is this idea a little bit, that if you did bad things, if you, you know, sinned, and then you got sick, that was God's, like, you know, kind of telling you um, that you, you've done wrong. We see that even in, like, the, the blind man, right? Or, 
yeah, the blind man who the pe- the people come up to Jesus and say, "Why is this man blind? Is it him who sinned, or was it his parents?" And Jesus says, "It was neither, um, but rather so that God's glory could be revealed." And so there was this idea, um, it, really, the idea of like you know poverty as a result of bad decisions. Um, before the Babylonian exile, which would have been like the 6th or so century BC. But in the Babylonian exile, when the Jewish people had to leave Jerusalem, had to leave Israel, um, something like 90% of the people would have been at the poverty line. So it's really hard to keep this idea up of poverty is something because you've you've done wrong. when 90% of your people who are still crying out to God, who are still praying, who are still coming to synagogue, who are still longing to be back in Jerusalem, um, that idea kind of died away a little bit. And the Israelite people started to see that it was precisely in their poverty that God was close to them. And that it was precisely when they cried out to him from the depths of their suffering that he was near them. And it is in these Jewish people who see that their poverty has an interior dimension. Their need for God is real, just like their need for for food or for clothing is real. When they start to see that their poverty has an interior dimension that opens them up to God, they start to see that the poor are the true Israel, who are longing, who are waiting. Um, And... It is in these Israelite people who are still oppressed by the Romans that the New Testament begins. That in Mary, in Zechariah, in Simeon, whose names you all see on one of the sheets in front of you, these are the people who have prayed and who have longed and who know the Psalms and who have waited and hoped. And they are the true Israel. And their Messiah is coming. So this poverty of spirit this poor in spirit, is set up against uh, pride, the deadly sin of pride, the proud of heart. Um, These slides, actually, I just took the chapter titles from Peter Kreeft, so he's wonderful. I think you should read his book. Um, You'll learn more than you will from me tonight. But this pride that says we are self-made, that says I can do it myself, that says Um, whatever good has come to me is because I earned it or because I did it. This kind of pride that doesn't need God is precisely what Jesus is speaking into when he speaks about the poor in spirit. And that beyond any material circumstances, we can keep that poverty of spirit that still recognizes all the good we have comes from God, and even the suffering we experience is at least allowed by God. So it is this poverty of spirit that gives us the receptivity to actually trust God. The saint that I paired with this poverty of spirit, um, though I should have really done St. Francis for so many reasons. He is probably the one who lived out this first beatitude, best of all. just in a radical way. I mean, St. Francis, who uh, literally gave up his clothes, gave up his house, gave up his money, all this, and went to be a beggar when he didn't have to. 
and rebuild the church by that. He lived it out very well. I chose Elizabeth of Hungary, though, because I think for our time, she's a beautiful example. She also is a third order Franciscan, so it's at least a nod to St. Francis in that. Um, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, who was raised in a court um, in order to marry that king. She was kind of, it, it was weird. They like brought her when she was like six from one um, royal court to another to like raise her in that court. Um, just something they did. But who was very prayerful, or pretty much we think for her whole life, um, who did not let herself get kind of worn down by the luxury and the, um, I don't know, celebratoriness of the court, um, and who had a reasonably good, as I learned more about her, a reasonably good marriage with her husband, um, despite perhaps what some of the like kids' stories that tell you about a saint in a paragraph um, would lead us to believe. Um, her husband definitely supported her generosity as well. So she would give the poor people um, in her city the food from the storerooms, money, whatever they needed. She was well known for her generosity and she was roundly critiqued for her generosity with what belonged to the court. So a beautiful example of generosity and poverty of spirit and prayerfulness, even though she was quite wealthy. She died at the age of 24, um, very young. She, her husband had actually passed away already. Life expectancy was, was not good anyway. Um, but in her very young life, she made quite an impact on her country, on the people around her. Um, and the poor of her city um, mourned her just as much as anyone. So a beautiful witness to us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's not really a timeline on any of these Beatitudes. This one in particular, I feel like, there's not really, it, there's, there's no like, when will the promise come true? There's a promise in every Beatitude, but God doesn't say exactly when. In this way, I think he is teaching us to hope teaching us to set our eyes on heaven like that first beatitude um, and yet even just by using this word comfort he's giving us hints of how we shall be comforted when we mourn so in Isaiah Isaiah 40 I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna read like maybe 10 verses from this I think you'll actually recognize a lot of it because as I was reading through it today, there are a lot of songs that are actually based on these parts of Isaiah. So it begins with, Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. 
The uneven ground shall become level in the rough places of plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, a voice that says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. So this whole section starts with comfort. Comfort, O oh my people. And why are they to be comforted? Because their God is here. Their God is coming. And there's a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare his way. says later all uh, what the people wither right the grass withers and people wither and at this misery of the shortness of our life that we can be really kind of haunted by right like there's that what British author that says you know when you're mourning for someone who's died it's both the person you're mourning for but it's also like your own death that you're coming to confront and what does the Lord say into this um, into this grief both at the death of others, but at the shortness of our own life. He says that he is coming. And his answer to our, to our mortality is to allow himself to enter into it, to live 33 years on this life, on this earth, and then to give us a, a model of how to die well that throughout our whole life, throughout Jesus' whole life, to cry out to God, to go to a lonely place and pray to our Father, and then at the end to be able to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And to pray that our loved ones will also know the closeness of God in this life and be ready to be greeted by him in the next. The Lord's comforting is his presence. And isn't that always what we what we really want from people? Like in our lowest times, there are no answers. <laughs> there are no good words. There's like a whole list of things that, you know, don't say to somebody who's grieving. Um, or, you know, that I don't know, like you see this on Instagram or Facebook, like, you know, what not to say to, uh, you know, somebody who got diagnosed with something. There are no words to say. There is just the presence of another who loves us. And for us, that is God. That is our God who created us and who walks us through this life and who will walk us into the next. Comfort, oh my people. I thought this was actually kind of a strange one, this morning versus envy. I was really curious about how are we gonna set this morning against advice? 
but envy um, is not necessarily just like, you know, saying, um, gosh, I'm trying to, anyway, I, it's not just saying, Lori, Lori's my coworker there, that I love the color of Lori's sweater, and I would like to have a sweater like it. That's not envy so much as envy is saying what that person has, not only do I want it, but I don't want them to have it. There is this difference between that. Um, with my students too, I always talk about how uh, jealousy is actually uh, somewhat proper to, um, in some manner. Um, jealousy is wanting to keep what is ours by right. So when we talk about God as a jealous God, that is okay because he wants to keep his people who are his own. He does not want us to be stolen away from him. Um, I, I always use the example of my coffee mug that I'm usually holding when I teach my students. Um, that if you come up and take my coffee mug and break it, like I would like, I, I should be a little bit jealous for my coffee mug. It's mine. You shouldn't break it. It's not yours. Um, but that jealousy can't take over, right? Like if I never put my um, mug down to open a book, that would be a little bit of a weird jealousy that gets really possessive. But <laughs> so jealousy is okay in some sense and to a point. Envy though never is because envy uh, does the opposite of what this beatitude wants us to. This beatitude says those who um, who mourn will be comforted, and then Paul will go on to Paul will go on to say, yes, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Envy does the opposite. It doesn't want other people to have good. It actually mourns at other people's good and rejoices at other people's misfortune. Um, we probably see that in our world today. We probably see that in ourselves a little bit. Like the people that we don't get along with, the people that, the, the, you know, the politicians, the famous people, whatever it is, like, these are why newspapers make money. It's, be, it, it's not really newspapers anymore. This is why whatever, like, you know, news outlet online <laughs> makes money. is because people want, have this, like, weird, twisted desire, and we probably see a little bit in ourselves, um, to, like, hear about other people's misfortune, their downfall, their mistakes, their sins. There's a certain part of us that is happy to hear about that. And this beatitude speaks right into that kind of twistedness and tries to show us God's healing of it. That it was not meant to be this way, that we are meant to be a human uh, family and a Christian family, and that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's this beautiful, um, this beautiful instruction not just on like an action to take but also the reality of who we are as a church that we are supposed to be so closely tied together that other people's sorrow affects us other people's joy is also experienced as our joy i think a beautiful witness of this is saint mary magdalene the picture i put here is of course mary magdalene um, seeing the risen Jesus, and she saw the risen Jesus because she was there at the tomb morning. And she stayed, she stayed right there. Um, in many ways, and I, I think I actually might have mentioned this last year, in many ways, Mary Magdalene just shows up. She shows up um, 
to Jesus when he's died. She shows up in the Gospels so many times. Um, she just, yeah, she has this beautiful being present with people who need her. And she mourns when Jesus dies. She rejoices when he's risen. She can't wait to share that news. She has this beautiful being with the Lord whom she loves. And then also this beautiful going to the apostles and being with them as well. She was likely also at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. She has this beautiful um, being with others, which is what this beatitude speaks about. And she believes Jesus's promise um, that in, in this scene, in fact, it's really Jesus probably saying the don't cling to me, don't hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to my Father, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So she shows us there's hope in the Lord's words that are not fulfilled yet, that she's not in heaven yet, she's not with God yet, but that she will be. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek here is the same word used when uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the Old Testament scripture is quoted about um, behold your king comes to you humble and riding on the foal of a donkey or something like that, right? This is the same word used for Jesus in his triumph, this meekness. And promise here is that they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> the promise of land goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham's promise from God was, was threefold, that he would have a great name, that he would be the father of a great nation, and that he would be a blessing. So this threefold promise, we actually see those three come up um, later in Moses, as the people are actually going to the promised land, we see this in King David, who is the head of that nation that was promised. And yet, just like that kingdom of heaven, it's not perfect. King David still sins. Moses doesn't even get to enter the promised land. Um, this promise of land we see hints of, but it's not totally fulfilled yet. And very similar to that first beatitude, it is the meek. It is those who see that all that they have comes from God, who will inherit this, this land that was promised, the promised land. It also is God keeping his promise to the Israelite people and showing that he remembers what he promised centuries ago to Abraham and that Jesus is coming it's not erasing any of those promises, but is fulfilling them. We see hints. I actually, I discovered this in teaching um, RCIC, Rite uh, of Christian Initiation for Children. We were looking at the promise of Abraham and the name, nation, and blessing, and then we read the Annunciation. And actually, even in the Annunciation, when Jesus is coming, is being announced to Mary, you can see little hints of that name, nation, and blessing coming back up. That he will have the throne of his father David, that um, 
that his, what is it, you shall name him Jesus, and um, that he will have power over um, the nations. So we see hints of this all throughout. This promise of land tied to those who are receptive to God. Meekness versus anger. Meekness sees ourselves for who we are, that we are flawed, that we are sinful, that all that we have that is good comes from God. Meekness is a truth about ourselves and coming ever more to believe that. Not that we're totally depraved, we don't believe that, um, but that we're weak and that we're flawed. Anger would see that everyone else is the problem and it's not me. It's never me. <laughs> Anger also seems to... This is okay. This is... A, I have actually never dealt with... Maybe those of you who have been married for longer know this. Um, I have never wrestled with the vice of anger so much as I have in the past, like nine months, <laughs> which is like wild to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it is a season. I hope it is a season. I actually feel like this is me maybe over-spiritualizing, but it, it might be right on. I think that the devil always tries to get us somehow, right? Like, that's just true. He always tries to get us somehow. So last year, before I was married, the really easy thing to try to get me with was, you know, oh, sitting on the couch a little too long, staying a little too late at night. Like, there was a temptation to different things, and now it just feels like there's, like, a switch that flipped, and now it's, like, just trying to cause division. And this division that sees that, you know, the reason that the laundry isn't done, the reason that I'm tired, the reason that I was frustrated at work today is all like centered on the person who's supposed to be closest to me. That's crazy. That is not the truth. It's not the truth about me. It's certainly not the truth about David. It's just about the kindest person I know. And yet, the devil tries to twist it, and he tries to center us on this one thing that is outside of us, but is like ruining everything. I'm not ever crabby because the laundry's not done. It's, that's not ever my only issue, right? Like it's other things that the devil tries to get us to center on. So, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more when we get to peacemakers. <laughs> <laughs> so St. Joseph um, St. Joseph I think is just the most beautiful example of meekness the, the head of the holy family the one who was called to raise Jesus to live with Mary, to live with these two perfect people, and was willing to do that quietly, humbly, and certainly saw all of his life 
as a gift from God. A man who was willing to trust God even when it sounded crazy that Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he was to flee to Egypt, a country he had almost certainly never been to before, and he trusts just the word of an angel in a dream, and he goes. A man who's willing to receive everything from God and to be driven not by his own emotions, not by his own fears, not by his own frustrations at like, he doesn't ever cry out to, you know, the Romans, to Herod, to anyone, that don't you get that this is God I'm trying to raise? Don't you get that this is... He's silent. It's beautiful. Um, yes. I almost chose him for the, um, the last beatitude, the comforting and mourning, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted because he's also the patron saint of a happy death. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst. We see these play out so often in the Old Testament. The people in the desert um, are crying out for bread. They're crying that they had, uh, what is it, like leeks and onions or something back in Egypt, and it was so much better there. They're crying out for food. God gives them water from the rock. This theme of hunger and thirst, both for God and um, for just our physical, normal needs, runs all throughout Scripture, and God provides. He provides the manna. He provides the water from the rock. He sends a raven to Elijah with food. Like, I'm so scared of birds. <laughs> That's, that would be the most terrifying thing to me ever if a raven was coming flying towards me. And like, which thank goodness, God will never do that because he knows that I could not receive a gift in that way. I would run away. I would never get my food for the day if a raven had to deliver it. Um, but this theme of hunger and thirst and God providing always runs through the Old Testament, and the theme of righteousness. We talk about holiness a lot now, um, which is good. We should. But the word for the Jewish people, probably, that they would hear was righteousness. This is also in the Psalms so often, even in that first Psalm, righteousness. This is the standard of holiness for Jewish people, the standard of closeness to God. Um, and it is Jesus's call, was it even in the gospel today? Unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. He's speaking about not just a righteousness that follows all the rules, but a righteousness that is interior and that is closeness to God and that knows we haven't arrived yet. That even if we follow all the rules, that even if we do everything we're supposed to, we are not yet perfect and we still long for God and long for more. Daniel in the Old Testament is called, um, I, I don't remember the Hebrew word for it, but he's called a man of the longings. I just thought that was so beautiful that this, this prophet who encountered great hardship, like any of the martyrs today, he was called a man of the longings. And isn't that our call too, to long for God and to not let those desires die? 
I see so beautifully um, in my work in RCIA people who are searching for God, who are seeking. Some who have sought for many years, some who have had very quick searches for God and have come to a conclusion. It's so beautiful, it's so humbling. Um, two years ago, I spoke about Edith Stein, who said, those who seek truth are always seeking God. That in whatever capacity we're searching for truth and we stay hungry for truth, we will come, we will find God in the end. So, they shall be satisfied. It's a beautiful promise of God. And its great enemy is sloth. Sloth that says, I'm good, I'm good enough, I'm quite content here. Anything else sounds much harder. Um, my, you know, my marriage, my parenting, my job, whatever I do, I'm good right here. This is the, you know, the, that metaphor of a frog. Like if you drop a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump right out. But if you put it in a pot of cold water and you slowly turn up the heat, it'll stay right there and it'll boil to death. Terrifying metaphor. But that is sloth. That we look around, we look at the other people around us, we say, I think I'm about as holy as them. I think I pray a little more than these people. Maybe a little less than the crazy people, but like more than these people. <laughs> so I'm good. <laughs> sloth is... Um, yeah, it's this comparativeness to others. I think there's an element of that oftentimes in sloth, or even a comparison to our old selves. Like, you know what, at least I'm not like I was in college. At least I've got life a little more figured out than I did, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it is. And yet we're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Until we see the promise fulfilled of the other Beatitudes, until we are in the kingdom of heaven, until we have seen the promised land. A wonderful example of this, St. Dominic, uh, the one who one of our parishes is named after. Um, I, I didn't include St. Clement, which I feel a little bad about. I don't know as much about St. Clement. I have been to St. Clemente, and I should know more about him, but I didn't pair him with one of these. Um, I'm sorry, but it is at St. Clement, so like I feel like that's that's a good shout out. Um, and this whole presentation is about Jesus and his holiness, so feel included, no matter which parish you go to, I guess. St. Dominic, though. St. Dominic, who founded a whole order, who went to Rome uh, more than once to get his order approved, who stayed up all night with an innkeeper when I'm sure he was tired, I'm sure he wanted to either continue on his journey or just rest, he's at an inn, stayed up all night with an innkeeper simply to correct the little errors, the little heresies that man believed, who was willing to um, reform the church, reform the beliefs of the church, even if they, maybe to others, didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. Like, yeah, maybe those people who 
don't believe exactly what the Catholic Church preaches, but they're still coming to church. They're still pretty good. Like, let's just maybe let them keep going. St. Dominic would not have any of it. He combated heresy all over his own country and gathered men around him to do the same. Um, beautiful hunger and thirst for righteousness himself and for the righteousness of others as well. His zeal um, is just, I think, incredible. Even just that little image of, I don't think you can quite see it with the light. It, it's, it's a little bit light. But that dog with a torch in its mouth that you always see at St. Dominic's <coughs> feet, um, that dog that lights the world on fire. And it, it comes from the, um, his mother's dream before he was born of a dog with a torch in its mouth setting the world ablaze. And that's who she saw St. Dominic as, just the zeal and hunger. Um, beautiful. It's a beautiful witness for us too, um, that it's not just St. Dominic called to that zeal for souls, and zeal for his own soul, it's all of us. <coughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart, much like righteousness, is a theme throughout the Old Testament, and the promise here is that they shall see God. What Elijah could only see, what Moses could only see him from behind, Elijah saw him in some fashion. The hope of these followers of God who never quite saw his face, this is promised now by Jesus to people who are, whether they believe it or not, seeing the face of God right there. And this purity of heart is not just, um, it's not just about chastity. It is a single-heartedness towards God. That whatever else, whatever else pulls at us, which are many things, our jobs, our families, our lives, our hobbies, whatever it is, that we remain single-hearted towards God alone first. I think this one in particular connects to the first three commandments that we see. To not have idols, that God shall be our God alone and we shall worship him. And to keep his name holy and to honor the Sabbath. This purity of heart that seeks him alone. It says no matter what I'm doing on Sunday, I'm going to Mass. It says no matter what other things I really desire, house, car, friends, whatever it is, if I have to compromise any part of my beliefs, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna search after it. It's purity of heart. And their promise is that they shall see the Lord. And in the mass today, I, we see the strongest glimpse of that, right? Like what is seeing God face to face? seeing him right there in the priest's hands in front of us. The bread and wine change at the level of their substance into God himself. Imperceptible to our senses, and yet the most real thing we'll encounter this side of heaven. Indeed, we do see God um, by faith. He is there, and we see that by faith. 
So a pure heart versus a lustful heart. A lustful heart that sees everything around me as perhaps it can be for my benefit. Um, that sees other people as, um, you know, the next rung on the ladder, the next relationship, whatever it is, um, seeing people as means to an end rather than as people. I think that might be the heart of lust um, and the way I'm going to explain it with children in the room. So <laughs> lust is seeing people as a, something to be used and not as people to be loved. So there's purity of heart towards God and towards others. St. Clair of Assisi, I think, does this rather beautifully. Um, probably pretty wealthy, from a wealthy family uh, just outside of Assisi. Goes to St. Francis in secret against the wishes of her family, asks to be accepted into his order, uh, and St. Francis makes a whole order uh, started by her, and then she convinces others to come along with her. Um, still poor clairs in the world today that are cloistered, that give up everything to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and to follow this um, poverty of St. Francis and of St. Clair in a very radical way. The prayers of St. Clair and still the prayers of these women today who are cloistered, who are prayerful, who seek God alone, they we'll never know this side of heaven how many like how many things have been saved by the prayers of nuns <coughs> their witness of seeing prayer as not just powerful but as their their only task of the day i mean i'm sure they nuns do other things other than pray they cook dinner they take care of the house they often garden all these things but their heart for prayer as the most important work of the day. St. Clair gives us a beautiful example. Final what, two, three? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Mercy in Latin is misericordia. Miserable heart, cordia is heart. Um, it's a heart that's moved at the misery of others. Very similar to that those who mourn shall be comforted. This heart that allows itself to be moved at the misery of others, this is the heart of God. And the, the instruction here, uh, or instruction, I don't exactly know what to call the first part, but it matches the promise that those who forgive are forgiven. This matches the Our Father as well, that mercy allows us to be open to mercy as well. This is also a generosity that I think connects to the poor in spirit one as well, and to St. Elizabeth of Hungary, but giving mercy rather than getting things. And I think that's not just like tangible things, but like it's also like getting even, getting something back from the one who's hurt us. This giving mercy um, flies in the face of greed. It, it doesn't say greed, but the advice here is greed. Greed that seeks to um, 
take what is ours and perhaps more. Mercy that says, even if I have a right to anger, even if I have a right to justice, I'm going to forgive. And I will not hold it against this relationship. I'll not hold it against you. And if it's something that I've done that's hurt myself, I'm not going to hold it against myself or God either. Mercy that forgives. Not just a beautiful example of this herself, but just a great herald of the mercy of God, St. Faustina, who lived in the last century, um, probably one of the centuries of the most heartache, the most uh, bloodshed, um, lived right between the two world wars and spoke about divine mercy. That mercy is the heart of God. You'll notice on that divine mercy image, of course, the um, red and white, the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side. That mercy is the reason Jesus went to the cross. It's the reason he poured himself out. Final one. I'm missing one, aren't I? Peacemakers. I have no slides about peacemakers. Oh my. Unless they're behind these, they're not. They're really not. I don't know how that happened. Peacemakers. Okay. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I don't even know what saint I was going to pair with this now that my mind is just blank. Blessed are the peacemakers. The best thing I think I've ever read about peace is Jacques Philippe's Searching for and Maintaining Peace. That one of the biggest tasks of our lives is to guard what was given to us at baptism on the day that we became children of God, God's dwelling place in our soul, to guard that as a place of inner peace. That all the things of this world that can pull us in a million directions like we talked about, at the center of it all is this peaceful inner room with God alone. And that nothing shakes our sure foundation that we belong to God and that this world is passing and that at the end of the day, come high water, we will only be separated from God by sin. Nothing else can actually harm us. It can. It can hurt us. It can wound us. It can make us sad. But nothing can rob us of our identity that was given at baptism. That indelible mark of being children of God and maintaining that place of peace in ourselves and then also in others, that is the peace of God that the saints are, um, call us to and show us and that we're making. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise comes full circle here with the kingdom of heaven being promised. And it is all these seven other beatitudes. Finally, at the very end, Jesus says, and if you do all of those, your life still might not be perfect. You might be persecuted. And indeed, every apostle listening to him was. Every saint in some way has been persecuted for this, and I'm sure that each of us in our lives, especially when we live um, most converted to Christ, will find some type of persecution, something to rob our hope. Sometimes that's from friends. Sometimes it might be from family. Sometimes it might be from 
you know, the grandchildren that think grandma is crazy for dragging us all to church on Easter and Christmas. And the type of like standing in your kitchen on the day before Christmas and putting whatever it is in the fridge to thaw and the oven to bake and wondering, should I bring it up with my daughter this year? Should I, what should I do? What is she gonna say? What is he gonna say? Should I really go through all that? And that is, that is a discernment that is, is reasonable and the answer might be different. But whenever we are persecuted for the righteousness sake, for whatever reason, the kingdom of heaven is there. And Jesus is right there with us. He was persecuted for the kingdom of heaven and for us. Courage under persecution versus self-indulgence. There are so many ways to distract ourselves and to run away from whatever is getting to us in so many ways. Um, both good distractions, you know, chocolate fixes a lot. Um, but if we always find that in the midst of God asking us to go deeper, asking us to perhaps be a little more courageous, asking us to maybe do something kind of radical for him, if we find ourselves always, and I certainly do, being like, you know, look at the time, I better go put dinner on, I better go check my email, I better go do whatever. It's, it's not right now. Um, we're called the courage, yes. Um, rather than the vice here is gluttony. That's the other word for self-indulgence. And Thomas More, I love Thomas More. He's such a great saint. Patron saint of lawyers, yes. Um, he was a martyr in England under King Henry VIII who desperately wanted a divorce from his wife who declared himself the head of the church, um, who made everyone in court swear an oath of supremacy that the king uh, could could set laws and, and had rights in England that usually uh, would only be for the pope. Made everyone swear an oath of supremacy, and Thomas More wouldn't do it. He was stripped of his titles. He was in a position, he was the chancellor of England. That's what the thing around his neck is, he was chancellor. He was stripped of his titles. He was uh, became very poor because of it, whereas he had been quite wealthy. Um, was imprisoned in the Tower of London and could have gotten out of all of it by signing a piece of paper. That basically all it said was, fine, King Henry can do what he wants. He could have still had all the power, he could have just hidden away in his house and been like, I'm not gonna do anything in court, I swore the oath, I'm done, I'm not gonna be part of it, but he didn't. He stayed in the Tower of London, he defended really the authority of St. Peter and the Pope um, and the rights of conscience, that he was willing to die for what he believed in, even if it was just one part of the faith. He wasn't even asked to give up the whole faith, just one part, and he wouldn't do it. It's a beautiful, beautiful witness of a man who sought truth and who 
was willing to do anything to defend it. Also, if you haven't seen A Man for All Seasons, that's what the actual picture is from. Amazing movie. Wonderful, wonderfully written. And so we arrive finally back at that first image of Jesus poured out on the cross and Jesus in the Eucharist. I chose the title of this talk, Love Poured Out, because in the Beatitudes, of course, this is a call to, um, to love like Jesus does. It's a self-portrait of Jesus who poured himself out. And if you listen to the words of the Mass, when Father uh, puts his hands over the chalice and over the bread before it's consecrated, he says, pour out your Holy Spirit upon these gifts and make them holy. And this Holy Spirit that is with us, that stays with us, that is the power behind our sacraments, that caused Jesus to once take on flesh in the womb of Mary, also causes Jesus to take on flesh on every altar at every Mass today. Love poured out upon these gifts. The Holy Spirit poured out upon these gifts. And the prayer of absolution that the priest prays over a penitent in confession um, was recently amended by one word. It amended, I think, last year, maybe November. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, it is the Lord calling you back to the sacrament of confession because it's beautiful. It changed by one word. It used to be God, the Father of mercies, has sent his Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins through the ministry of, this, of his church. May God grant you pardon and peace, and I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It used to be he sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins, and now to emphasize the connection between God's mercy and confession and his merciful gift of love in the Eucharist, that word is God the Father of mercies has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us for the forgiveness of sins. The same Holy Spirit that caused Jesus to take on flesh, walk among us, see us face to face, is the same Holy Spirit that brings Jesus present right to us, right in front of our eyes, right into our hearts, and is the same Holy Spirit who forgives us and who calls us back to himself. questions before I close us out in prayer. thing to do is to have the vices paired with the virtues. I think it's lovely. I almost did think of adding another column of that. Um, but because I hadn't heard the Beatitudes paired with the vices before, I kind of just went with that. If you've never seen the virtues, the seven virtues paired with the vices, 
I could go home, Google it, add it to your list. It's a beautiful thing too. And to strive for virtue rather than just playing whack-a-mole with vice is a great way to go. <laughs> Um, also, I just realized a question that maybe some of you are wondering. I have two pages in front of you. One was like a little note-taking sheet. You're free to look at that if you want to. The other, though, is three canticles. These are the canticles of Zechariah, Mary, and Simeon. Uh, Zacharias is prayed every morning in Liturgy of the Hours by every priest, deacon, nun, pope, bishop, and lay person that wants to. The canticle of Zechariah is prayed. This is Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father, who was mute for like nine months, and then these are some of the first words he says. Mary's canticle, of course, um, that great Magnificat that she said to Elizabeth when she goes to greet her um, and stay with her for three months, and then Simeon's canticle, which is Simeon, this old man in the temple who's prayed, who's waited, who's longed, who's hoped to see God. Uh, that one is prayed at night, and then Mary's is prayed at evening prayer in Liturgy of the Hours. I think they beautifully portray these people's receptiveness, their poverty of spirit, their gratitude and comfort at knowing the Messiah, at seeing him, at hearing of him for the first time. And it shows us this hope of Israel fulfilled. It also, I think you can see hints of the Beatitudes in each of these. They mention mercy, um, they mention hum humility, they mention that meekness. Um, so I thought that would be a beautiful uh, prayer for you to have. And even if you don't pray the whole Liturgy of the Hours, praying these morning, evening, and night could be a beautiful thing to remind us of the Beatitudes and to speak the words of people who lift them out very well. Yes? Okay. Um, I never thought of the the attitudes were the promises of Christ. You know, the very last part of it. Uh -huh. Okay, um, a long time ago, I got this little bread box and it had promises, you know, from the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, but you know what? I think the, all the promises refer to salvation. Yes. I mean, it's a foundation. Yes, all these promises. Some people get that far. Uh huh. All these promises of Jesus ultimately point towards salvation, that his ultimate promise is that he's here to heal and save and bring us to heaven, yes. Well, you have to believe his promises mm -hmm. that you are saved. Mm -hmm. And that is your foundation. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll also be around for questions at the end or just to chat or whatever, but let's close out in, um, how about we close with the shortest of the canticles? <coughs> and because it's night prayer, not just because it's short, but because it goes with night prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. I am Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.